You're listening to episode 46 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Chat About Children where we chat about all things children and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today's episode is all about Lego-based therapy. I am sharing a very interesting chat with Dr. Daniel Legoff, who's the pioneer of Lego-based therapy, and it certainly is an increasingly popular approach to facilitate and to foster social learning in children. In today's episode, we talk about what it is, what is Lego-based therapy, how did it even come about, and we also answer questions such as how does a Lego group work or a Lego club work, and what are the benefits associated You might be a parent or carer who's heard about Lego Club, but not too sure exactly what it's about. Or you might be a professional that is interested in perhaps looking at Lego-based therapy as an approach to implement within your clinical work. And of course, there are educators that no doubt would like to learn more about Lego therapy and Lego clubs and whether it's something that they can implement within their educational or their learning setting. So without further ado, let's get the chat started with Dr. Daniel Legoff. Dr. Daniel Legoff is a clinical and developmental neuropsychologist who was born and educated in Canada and is currently a clinical supervisor and consultant based in Pompano Beach, Florida. He was educated in Vancouver, British Columbia and completed his clinical training in Chicago and Honolulu. He is best known for his work on improving social development using collaborative Lego activities. This model was developed to meet the needs of a growing population of children and adolescents who had social learning difficulties and who did not appear to be improving with standard forms of psychotherapy or behavioural interventions. After publishing the initial studies on this method, Dr. Legoff collaborated with colleagues in the USA and UK to write a treatment manual and a subsequent book of case studies. Since then, this approach has been adopted in over 50 countries and the manual is available in six languages. Dr. Legoff continues to do research and provide consultation and training internationally to universities, clinics, and provider groups on Lego-based therapy. Dr. Daniel Legoff, welcome to Chat About Children. Hey, Sonia. Thanks for having me. Congratulations, can I say, for pioneering Lego-based therapy and for all your continued wonderful research that you continue to do in the area of helping social learning difficulties. Well done. Thanks. I'm not being humble when I say I didn't really invent Lego therapy. The more people know about it, the more they realize I had almost nothing to do with it. It was really the kids that invented their own therapy. So I give all credit to them. Absolutely. But I guess part of that was your observation of that and noting that and then extending from it, right? Yeah, I just kind of let it happen. I I paid for the Lego, basically. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Hey, a lot of us do that. A lot of us do that, Daniel. So help us understand before we launch into what I think is quite a fascinating area to look at, and that's social skills and combining that with Lego. Help us learn just a little bit about you, Daniel, and what were you doing in the days before becoming a clinical and developmental neuropsychologist? What then led you into that general or broad area? Well, I think I decided to go into the field of mental health right from high school. I had had some experience working for my dad who ran a a special needs school 
he had been an engineer and then he became a, a teacher and eventually a school principal and a special educator. And he worked with kids with special needs. And my two brothers and I would go to his school quite a lot. So I became very comfortable with that population. And autism and related conditions also run in my family. So I had a lot of relatives that I felt very close to and, and had a positive relationship with who were autistic or had Asperger's. And so it seemed pretty familiar territory to me. And I decided I wanted to go initially into brain sciences. So I was a neurophysiology researcher. And my supervisors, you know, kind of encouraged me to think about going into clinical work because they told me, I mean, I remember it was pretty clear at the time that there was, tenure was drying up and life as a researcher meant living from grant to grant. And <laughs> yeah. said, you know, if you can make it as a clinician, that might be a better idea. So they weren't discouraging me from doing research as much as encouraging me to maybe develop the clinical part of my career as well. And then it kind of took over. But I've always maintained a strong interest in both the core aspects of science and how that integrates with clinical practice. Fantastic. Fantastic. And thank you for sharing that background because it helps us kind of understand the premise behind how you got into this area of work. And then to extend beyond that, Daniel, I'd love for you to share the story of, and I've read about this, but can you help share the story of that time that you were observing kids playing Lego and what was going through your mind and what did you do after that? Well, most people know initially, you know, when I was starting out in my first private practice, actually I had a partner, a child psychiatrist, and he and I had a fairly large office space and I got to take over a big room that was my playroom. And as a young psychologist, I wanted to have a good playroom, you know, so I had it all full of, of all the fun stuff that I wanted, including like big, foamy, bouncy things that kids could jump on and roughhouse. And then I had a puppet theater and a water station and I had a sand tray and a lot of creative materials, drawing materials and clay and dress up materials. And in one corner, I had a bunch of Legos because, you know, when I was a kid, I liked them and I knew. That would be something interesting to me if they showed it. You know, I thought, oh, Lego is an expressive material. And a lot of the boys that I was getting referred to at the time, there were mostly boys, some girls, but a lot of boys who had autistic conditions. Some of my colleagues were not so sure because Asperger's was a new diagnosis at the time. It came out, you know, officially about 1994. And so this was only a couple of years after that that I started getting some of these referrals that people thought, well, this looks like something Dr. Dan would be good at. Let's, let's send this <laughs> yeah. kid over to him. They don't seem to be the right kind of kid. But quite a few of them seemed to prefer the Lego corner more than anything. And they started, you know, creating a building with me and we'd talk. You know, at least I could get them to engage with me. And they seemed to be interested in coming back. If I offered them Lego, they would be at least willing to, to meet with me so we could talk about, you know, social stories and you know, yes. maybe some life skills and we would reverse social situations to do some social problem solving and skill streaming and things like that. Yeah. And they left Legos behind, of course, in the room. And sometimes other kids would come in and they would look and see Lego creation and they would be curious about that. It was the first time that I'd seen kids show an interest in other kids' products because they've seen sculptures they might have made out of clay or Play-Doh, you know, left on the shelf where they might have seen drawings on the wall or, you know, on the easel or something. But they wouldn't comment about that. As soon as they saw Lego, they would ask, hey, Dr. Dan, who made that? Yeah, you had, interesting. You had another kid in here, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, didn't know you? that Lego. <laughs> Someone else was here because I could see their Legos over there. 
And then one day, you know, two of the boys had overlapped. Their parents were leaving, you know, one set of parents was leaving, another set of parents was coming in, and the boys were in the waiting room together. And both of them had Lego creations that they brought to show me. And I wasn't in the waiting room at the time, but the parents said it was like they just saw each other, started talking. And by the time I came out to get the other kid, they were sort of off to themselves, animatedly chatting about Lego. And, you know, what sets they had, what they had built, and what kind of creations they like to do, and what they do with Lego with me, and was Dr. Dan any good at Lego? (laughs) Yep. And then one of them left, and the other kid, his name was Kevin, he said to me, hey, Dr. Dan, that kid, he's from my planet. Wow. And I suddenly realized that they probably had never met another kid just like them. And if you meet enough people who have Asperger's, after a while, it is kind of like siblings or people from a particular ethnic group or something. They have a yeah. manner of speech and a way of conducting themselves and the way they talk about certain kinds of their, you know, their interests. You know, if you see, I call it pushing the right button. Like you can talk to them about a lot of things and then you hit the right button and suddenly they start spewing all this information about their fantastic interest in, you know, insects or elevators or trains or buses or license yeah. plates or whatever it is that their topic is. And for a lot of them, they do have a kind of a, a shared collection of interests. At the time, it was a lot of like anime that was emerging and, you know, certain kinds of video games. Some of them had the interest in Star Wars. And then Lego was a kind of a universal language. They all spoke Lego. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it is a universal language, isn't it? For yeah. many that, you know, fall within say the autism spectrum and related conditions or not. So sorry yeah. to interrupt, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a visual story, spatial so. language. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well, anyway, what happened to those two kids was that I, you know, put two and two together and I thought, well, they seemed very interested in, in connecting with each other. So the, and the parents had talked to each other. So I said, what do you guys think about us, you know, overlapping the appointments? So I would see both of them together. And I had in my mind I knew what was going to happen if the two of them came into the room, they would initially talk and then they would go off in, in parallel play. You know, they would build Lego sets next to each other. Yep. There wouldn't be any real interaction. So that's when I did a little crunching <laughs> mentally. And I thought, how the heck do I get these guys to this really come in and, and interact? And then, so that's when I came up with the idea of dividing up the task. So I could introduce a new Lego set and they'd be highly motivated to build it with me. Yes. But I wouldn't let them do it by themselves. So I said, okay, we're going to have one person be the engineer. You're going to have the directions. Another person's going to get the parts. They'll be the part supplier. And the third person's going to do the building. And so we had these roles that created interdependence and allowed for us to have a joint accomplishment. We're all going to do something together and it's going to be a lot of fun. So the idea that doing this together was actually more fun than doing it by yourself emerged as a result of that. And they quickly learned from each other that as they kind of encouraged each other and communicated better, they got better at building, which was the real motivation. They had no interest in each other, really. Yeah, they had a common goal. Right. Which I learned later actually was fairly typical of the way men bond in general. I mean, I don't want to be overly stereotypical about it, but in general, women tend to develop relationships through personal disclosure and sharing of experiences, mainly personal information that they share. Boys and men tend to bond in a more triangulated way because we become friends because we have a common interest or we have common accomplishments. We cheer for the same football team or 
we fish together or we fix motorcycles together or we fix cars together or we enjoy watching trains together or we collect bugs (laughs) together or stamps or whatever it is that we do. And we have this thing in common. And sometimes we do it together. And while we're together, once in a while, we share a little bit of information about ourselves, which is typical of how men, like men will do things together and they become quite good friends. And then years later, they introduce each other. You know, oh, yeah, Yeah. Bill. Oh, great, 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 Bill. We've been (laughs) friends for a year and a half now. It's good to know your name. So that's what I found about the, you know, the, these boys is they were, as Simon Baron Cohen has pointed out, sort of a hyper male psychology was involved where these were very, very sort of extreme versions of that, very systematic in their reasoning and very focused on tasks that they were interested in and not so much on people. Yes. But they could be interested in people if they had enough shared interest. And they were like, oh, okay, you know, I'll deal with you. You're human, but you're also into Lego. So that's okay. Yeah, that's right. And I guess like that moment where you went into the waiting room and you saw those two boys communicating and excited about, you know, Lego and what they had been building, I'm sure you would have just gone, okay, that's different because that in itself for the listeners that aren't aware would be, have been an an atypical sight to see for those two particular boys. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so that's what kind of clicked for you and, hey, let's take the next step. Now, I'd love to hear, and just because I'm fascinated by the story, so those two boys, then what happened after you kind of had some sessions with them as joint sessions and you saw that you kind of applied some different roles and made it quite clear and structured and here's the goal that we're trying to achieve? So there was that focus on the goal that kept them engaging and interacting and excited about accomplishing the goal. What kind of happened in a therapeutic sense for you, what were you seeing was changing over the sessions? Well, fairly quickly, the other thing that happened is other boys wanted to join. They saw the Lego creations. I started buying Lego sets for these you know, kids, and it didn't take more than a couple yeah. of new Lego sets to get the other boys to go, hey, what's going on? There's like some really cool Lego building going on, and I'm not part of it. <laughs> yeah. So then I added extra kids to the group. One of the things we did was start expanding the range of communication around this idea that we're going to start some kind of a club. So, for instance, when I offered to buy them a new Lego set, I didn't just tell them what I was going to get. I didn't say, okay, I want to buy another Robin Hood set. I made them, or it's something forest, Knights of the Forest or something. Anyway, they, so I made them look at the catalog and decide. So that was kind of a hurdle for them that they had to share ideas about what they were interested in and influence each other. We also began doing freestyle creation. So they would come in with ideas or they might have brought something from home or they would take a Lego set and they'd want to improve it or change it in some way. And I required them to communicate this idea to us as part of this little group of Lego builders before they could get permission to do it. So I was still in charge of the Lego and I would say, that sounds like an interesting project, but how exactly would you build it? You know, can you do a drawing for us, do a schematic? You know, can you describe how this is going to work? What kind of pieces do you need? What color is it going to be? You know, so communicating their idea more effectively and being engaging with us about it in order to convince us that it was a good idea, that was really the hurdle. And so that, in a way, became the basis for what later became the Lego levels. So when people first joined Lego groups, they're at a helper level and they look for pieces and they help other people do their building process. They contribute, but they're not in charge. And then over time, they get good at the three basic skills, which is 
part finding, following directions and putting pieces together correctly, following the directions. And they worked their way up from being a Lego helper to becoming a Lego builder. Yes. Once you're a Lego builder, then you're allowed to contribute ideas about, you know, freestyle creations that you might want to build. And you come up with an idea, you might have a drawing, you have some reason for wanting to build something that's innovative and, you know, creative and has a design to it, you know. And then you, that's when the other kids recognize you as a Lego creator. <laughs> yep. So now you jump up to being a Lego creator. And then the task becomes, can you expand that to larger projects that require you to take some leadership role and become like a project manager? And we all know that, you know, the step up for, say, someone who's, you know, a master builder and kind of a designer engineer is to become a project manager. You know, so if you take an architect's drawings and you flush it all out and you, you know, you lay out the a larger structure and you coordinate with multiple different professions, you know, you've got builders and engineers and carpenters, bricklayers, you know, and you get the whole thing, electricians and all that. So you oversee a project. It's fantastic. And so people, that, the kids in the groups that are able to achieve at that level and be a good leader on a larger project, whether it's a freestyle or just a big Lego set, are Lego masters. So the longest time, once kids got to the Lego master level, they graduated and that was it. We were like, okay, well, if you're going to do that, your social skills are as good as any kid yeah. needs. You know, you can communicate and build alliances and interact socially quite well. But Right around that time, and this would have been early 2000s, I think, or no, late 90s, early 2000s, we started doing the first stop motion films. And that's when we had to create another level, which was where the kids would create stop motion animated films. Wow. And then they had to write a script or have someone write a script for them. But basically, they got to be a director producer of a short animated film and they would have to lead the group in a project like that, which might include a lot of set building. They would have to audition voice actors and have, you know, kind of like direct the, the stop motion, the cinematography, all that had to take place in a very complicated process. And that's when we created the, the Lego genius level. Wow. You know, I haven't actually heard of the Lego genius level, but now I have. That's yeah, Lego genius is. So when the other kids watch your movies, and we used to have twice a year Lego film festivals, we'd have uh -huh. all those short animated films bunched together. They're all a couple minutes long, you know, maybe two to five minutes of film. And we would show them all on a big screen, you know, have a couple hundred kids in the audience. And if the other kids agreed that your film was genius, <laughs> then you, <laughs> yeah. you got to be a Lego genius. The other kids had to agree. And that's one of the things about the levels, by the way. It's like belonging to a karate club or other martial arts where you work your way up from, what is it, white, yellow, orange, you know, blue, green, yeah. those levels. But the decision about your level comes from the other kids in the room, not from me or from the therapist. So they decide, okay, you're at this level. But you have to master them one after the other. You can't start off as a builder and jump right to being a Lego master or a Lego genius. You have to kind of work your way up. So to get to the point where people are going to let you make a movie, you have to show that you have all the other skills. And so the Lego genius thing came on then. But the problem was the kids who became Lego geniuses had committed a lot to the groups and they had spent so much time and energy to get there. They didn't want to leave. They didn't want to stop. Yes. And so what happens then? Well, there wasn't any at that point that their social abilities, their social competence by that point really was at or above age level. So we couldn't really, you know, tell the parents, well, they need to still come. You know, it's 
it yeah. was there it was therapy it wasn't just the club it was therapy and we were charging for it so he told the parents you know you don't have to pay anymore your kid can come for free and nice. i created this thing called the lego legends and the lego legends were kids who had graduated but were invited back amazing they became my helpers and so they had worked their way through the different levels of the groups and they could come to any group so some of the kids would choose to come to much younger groups or they might choose to go and visit groups that they had heard about but never seen and just kind of walk in the room and they were like little mini lego celebrities they would walk into the oh that's so and so i've seen his creations you know oh wow He's a Lego genius, and now he's a Lego legend, you know. That is so cool. Yeah, so we had, like, Lego celebrities visiting the Lego clubs. I love that. I love that. Well, like, I'm actually just, I'm really excited because I was excited before, just kind of going, hey, you know, like, I've seen it work, as I mentioned earlier within my speech pathology clinic, just based on kind of those three roles, you know, that you'd mentioned. And now there's so much more to it. I'm like, wow, this just opens up a whole new world for kids and how they can progress and the skills they can learn. It's just amazing. So in talking about that, I'm hearing so many things that kids can learn between each level and at each level, obviously. So, and then look, there's heaps of skills, Daniel, but can you rattle off a few of those, like what are the skills you're looking at? When do you know, like tick, and if it's easy to say on a podcast, because there are a lot of skills, but what are some of the key things you look at to go, yep, I'm comfortable that this child is able to move up to the next level. Now, there are a lot of levels. So even if it's just some of the fundamentals that you can mention, what are those specific skills that you kind of look at? I have covered this territory somewhat in the books. But one thing I want to clarify is that I make a distinction between the word ability and skill. In fact, I teach a lot of my graduate students to make a distinction between abilities, skills, and performance. Okay. Abilities are things that you're naturally born with and that you can typically do intuitively. So when someone's good at something naturally, they have some ability that's emerging. But over time, typically kids develop skills that capitalize on their abilities. So skills are things you learn. And then performance is really the more visible aspect of that. So for instance, when you see someone who can really play, I don't know what's popular there, but I know tennis. Let's say with tennis, when someone can play the game of tennis well, you know that what you're looking at is the performance that is a result of both underlying abilities that they were probably born with, you know, hand-eye coordination and physical agility, and respiratory ability, and then the performance on that day, which can be affected by a whole other set of variables. Okay, so when I look at a kid, I always try to keep in mind that I'm looking at the tip of the iceberg, which is the performance that is based on a set of skills as well as a set of abilities. Mm-hmm. For most children, social competence, that's the term I prefer, social competence is what you're observing, is an ability, not a skill. In fact, most people with social skills are people we don't like. <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> They're trying to sell you something. <laughs> people who have social skills are usually people who are trying to influence you. Yeah. And they've gone to the trouble, like actors have a skill that is, is helpful to them in social situations, but we find them smarmy and kind of insincere. And yeah. it's difficult to tell if they're acting or not. And it's yeah. kind of like, mm, I don't really trust you because you have social skills. And I know I'm using that term a little bit differently than most people do, but I want to highlight the importance of this being a natural process for most children. 
And one of the problems that I see with people trying to teach children social skills is that they do actually focus on social skills without changing the underlying ability. So without being motivated at all or interested in other children, you're suddenly telling them about how to behave, which is not the same thing as being social. Yes. And so when kids come up and shake hands and introduce themselves by name, I know they've been in a social skills class because typical boys don't do that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> not, right? Yeah. They, don't, they don't say, hi, my name is Johnny, and they shake in your hand. Well, 10-year-olds don't shake hands. So to me, I, I think the skill part of it needs to occur simultaneous with a growth in the individual kid, which is more of a motivational aspect to it. So it's not just that they're learning the rules of social engagement or social communication. And we do have certain rules, and I'll talk about those. But they're motivated to learn them, and they're interested in each other. And so that's a large part of what the change is, because when that happens, the skill or the rule or whatever it is you're trying to work on leaves the room with the kid. It's not just something that they're going to do when they're there, because it's the rule. Yes, so there are two sets of rules in Lego Club. One is a set of prescriptive rules that I try to encourage the kids to develop for themselves. So it's things like don't climb on the furniture and use an indoor voice. And, you know, just some of the kids will come up with rules like, you know, don't pick your nose or no smoking. You know, like they'll, 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 they'll come up with some kind of silly rules. But then they, they typically come up with a, a set of rules that are fairly typical of most classrooms. That, you know, they're like, and then the rules that, that govern how we're supposed to maintain the room and the materials, like, don't stand on the desk, but at the same time, you know, we have rules like if you break it, you really are responsible to fix it. And if someone else is using it, don't take it. Like just kind of common sense stuff. Yeah. But the other set of rules is what we call the rules of cool. And the rules of cool until when I'm a, a couple of my mothers insisted on me writing them down. And like, I never wanted to write down the rules of cool because then I knew someone was going to tell me that it wasn't cool to have a set of rules of cool. But they really wanted to know, well, what are these rules of cool you're teaching our kids? And we should know. I try to keep parents out of the room. I'm like, never mind. You don't need to know about it. You know, it's, it's up to us. It's our club. It's <laughs> not you. Just, but eventually I did write them down. But the basic idea is that the kids know from their experiences with other kids who have good social competence that they seem to follow certain kinds of rules that they don't, that make them uncool. You know, like if you pick your nose in front of people, or fart loudly, and it's not funny, it's not cool. Or if you just talk incessantly about the same thing when other people are bored, that's not cool. If you don't look at people when you're talking to them, it's not very cool. Or if you do all the talking and you never ask a question, not so cool. And so, or if you crowd somebody and it upsets them, you know, if you get in their space, or if you tease them, there's certain kinds of things that we'd say, nah, nah, that's not so cool. What would be a better idea? And so we kind of work with the rules of cool to help improve social confidence. And sometimes I would give kids homework. For instance, I would say, you know, pick out the coolest kid in your room. And they all know, like, oh, who's the kid? It's like the one kid in the room in their school classroom. Everybody wants to go to that birthday. If you don't get invited to that birthday party, that would be terrible, right? He's the coolest kid. And I said, just watch that kid. For some of the kids, I'll tell them, you know, say the kid's name is Zach. Okay, Zach's the coolest kid in your room. I say, why don't you say hi to Zach? Well, uh, Zach doesn't know me. I'm like, you know what? Zach's cool. I bet you any money if you say hi to him, he's going to say hi back because he's cool. He will do that. He's polite. And they would say, oh, yeah, maybe if I say hi to Zach. And I said, then what will happen? The other kids will think you know Zach. 
oh yeah, they'll think I know Zach. And I was like, yeah, then you'll be cool. <laughs> yeah. They'll be like, he knows Zach. <laughs> yep. So we do that kind of stuff, but the progression typically goes through fairly basic things like reciprocity and sharing of materials, being willing to collaborate on tasks. That's the what we call the triad or the engineer, part supplier, builder process. And that's fairly basic of just, you know, understanding other people's points of view. Yes. So for instance, you'll see a kid who is anticipating the builder by laying the parts out in, in a row so that he knows which piece is going to be used next. And they're doing it in a timely way and not just stacking all the pieces up and then walking away because their job is done. You know, they're actually participating in a kind of paced, meaningful way. Or And you see this change in motivation and their way of thinking that they're joining the group and really wanting and enjoying that. They're enjoying being part of the group for the first time. So there's that aspect of the motivation. It's like you'll see them kind of getting the idea that, wow, you know what? Building with other kids is more efficient and it's more fun to do it this way than just to do it by myself. They also see changes in their communication. I mean, I've worked with a lot of kids that were nonverbal at this level, and they'll start getting better at both verbal and nonverbal communication in terms of making eye contact, joint attention, gaze, like watching where they're looking to see what they're interested in. They might just look over their shoulder at something and they kind of follow it like, oh, you're looking over there. I should look over there too. What are you interested in? So you see these subtle nonverbal cues they're less intrusive with each other, not bumping into each other, not bumping heads all the time. And they're really on top of each other. And, and one of the things I, I always say, like people say, why Lego? At this level, you know, where they're really building simple sets together, one of the big advantages of it is there's so many damn pieces. Yes. So every piece of a 300-piece set, if you will, is that pretty big set. But I mean... You know, you take something pretty large like that, or even 100 pieces, that's 100 opportunities to interact, you know, because you have to talk about that piece, and you have to decide where it's going, and you have to, like, point, then you have to check and make sure it's in the right place. And so there's 100 opportunities for them to have some kind of meaningful, concrete interaction, and the therapist gets to shape that process each time. The next opportunity comes right up. Oh, that didn't go so well, but there's another piece right now, and we're going to try it better. So let's try doing this. You don't have to go backwards. You can just keep plowing along, and they're motivated to continue. You don't have to start doling out the token points or something. You know, they're, yes. they're engaged in the activity. They want to be there. You've got a captive audience, and they're bound to listen to you because you've got all the Lego. So, <laughs> so you can give them really frustrating directions, and you can just, like, needle them and poke them and, like, really uh, bother them about their so it's like, I'm like, who are you talking to? You're not looking at anybody. You seem to be talking to the wall. Why the heck are you talking to the wall? Like, and they'll put up with that because they're building. You know, they'll put up with me bothering them about their bad social skills. I'm like, did you just pick your nose? You have to go wash your hands now. Don't whine about it. I'm not letting you build anymore if you don't wash your hands. And don't put your fingers in your nose again. You know, like, they'll put up with that. And yes. normally they would get all frustrated and just leave. And thank you for sharing all that because what I'm hearing is two key things amongst many wonderful smaller things. Just the natural intrinsic motivation is super high with the activity of Lego, obviously. So the clinician yourself don't have to do too much work around motivating them because that's there, that's ready to go, that's what they're that's what they're using to work toward. And it's a natural interest as well. So as you mentioned before, when you're delineating between skills and abilities, etc. A lot of the skills seem to, I guess, flow from that activity 
and that's going to be different for everyone to different degrees, but they're skills that are almost just embedded in how the activity is being carried out and implemented. So it is a very naturalistic context. Oh, totally. It happened like a lot of my graduate students are people who come to observe Lego clubs. They often think that I'm going to be much more active than I am. And they're surprised to see that the best therapy is when you're sitting there doing nothing. You know, you're irrelevant to the process. They do literally do their own therapy. You can just sit there and watch them doing it. Saying that, you know, initially it's this very core level. They increase their social motivation. They develop some communication skills, but it's a lot of kind of motoric, repetitive sort of activity. And they're just getting used to the idea of how to be with other kids. And they develop those core skills. And the next level up, obviously, they're much more creative. So when they're freestyling, they have to share ideas. They have to convince other people of their ideas. They have to communicate effectively. They have to maintain a mental set about what's happening here. Are we getting off track? They have to do a lot more social problem solving. People get upset with them. So they have to deal with other people's arguments and emotions. And they'll have people on their team that are trying to help them with something who are like arguing with each other. So the social problem solving, conflict resolution, that kind of thing happens next. And then, and then the leadership part where you really have to think about the personalities that are involved. And so there's a much higher level of social reasoning. So you might have to take into consideration what these other people's interests are. And then you start trading favors. That's a big, big part of what happens later in the groups is the ability to say, look, last week I did a voiceover for you, you know, that really made your film. This week I really need your help with the building or I, I want to engineer something that I know that you're really good at that kind of thing. I want you. So people trade favors and share ideas and strategize in a way that makes their relationships really almost cl clear to them. Because I've had kids come to me and say, you know what, Dr. Dan, I'm never going to get to be Lego genius if I don't get better with, with my social skills. <laughs> like they'll, yeah. they'll tell me that they're working on social skills. That's amazing. And that self-awareness builds really, really quickly too. So looking at a lot of the studies, and there are current studies that are being conducted as well, because obviously there's more evidence base that's being looked at in various settings, etc. And one of the questions that's often asked is that ability to generalize, and this goes just clinically across the board, generalizing skills learned within a clinic context into the greater community and in the daily functioning life skills, I guess, that are required. From everything you've described so far, Daniel, a lot of it sounds like sounds like it should transfer into kind of daily occurrences and life skills for when they get older and have to use those skills in their vocation, for example. Where are we at with research currently and transferring those abilities, skills, et cetera, into life situations outside the clinic setting? Where are we at? Well, that was one of the first things I wanted to know when I did my first study. Sometimes people forget that the first study I ever did on Lego therapy involved looking at kids on the playground at their school. So I did observe them. In fact, it wasn't me directly. I had some graduate students from the University of Hawaii go to schools prior to the kids coming into the Lego club to collect baseline data. And then we did follow-up where we used a, a timeline design where we watched these kids multiple times. Initially, when they were first referred to the clinic, they were on a waiting list. They, did, they hadn't started the Lego club. And we went to their schools and observed them during lunchtime, recess, and then after school. And we were interested in three things that I was hoping would measure what I was trying to conceptualize as social 
confidence and or social adjustment. Let's, you know, I use the term social confidence in the research. And one of those things was initiating social contact. So, you know, evidence that you were motivated to engage with other children independent of adult prompting. So it wasn't like an adult telling you or dragging you over there and saying, yeah, you're going to hang out with these other kids. You know, the child had to initiate social contact. And the frequency that a kid would initiate social contact was taken as a variable. Another variable was how frequently you did things that other kids would be like, ooh, that was strange. So socially stigmatizing or potentially stigmatizing behaviors like talking about ants when nobody else was or flapping your hands, twirling in circles, you know, who knows, playing with your shoelaces. There was things that other kids were like, ooh, okay, that's a repetitive stereotype behavior. And how frequently you engaged in those was something we were interested in measuring. The third thing, and it turned out to be the best measure overall, was how long were you able to sustain an interaction with a kid on average? So let's say that on average, you went out on a playground, you interacted with another kid, and then you had lots of interactions, but they were all five seconds long. Yes. So you weren't going to make a lot of friends interacting with other kids for five seconds. So we wanted to know, did experience in Lego Club generalize to the, the after school or playground settings in ways that allowed children to sustain interactions longer? And I didn't really care what was going on. I wasn't the arbiter of what was appropriate. Because I think adults have a very fuzzy understanding about what works socially for kids. Like, what's going to make you popular? I don't know. I wouldn't even know today. It's like, I didn't know then. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, if you're going to be a socially successful six-year-old, who am I to say what that involves? All I know is if you're a socially successful six-year-old, you spend a lot of time with other six-year-olds and those interactions last. So that was one of our other measures. So we took those three measures and we showed, yeah, there was some significant improvement. Fairly soon after publishing that study, I got feedback from other people, including Ami Klin at Yale. And Ami was the first person to say, well, that's kind of generalization going from Lego club to the playground, but what about more generalized measures? And he encouraged me to look at the Vineland adaptive behavior scales as a general measure of social you know, accomplishment or age norm-based measure of social development. So we used the socialization domain from the Vineland in a second study that was a three-year follow-up. And we found in that study, we compared the Lego Club kids to kids who had the same amount of therapy, but not Lego therapy. And we found that our kids did significantly better. And it was around that time, actually, that I met Simon Baron-Cohen, at a conference, and he was there talking about one of his books. I think, you know, Simon, he's from Cambridge University, very, very well-known autism researcher. And he said on a talk that I gave about Lego Club, and I did a little demonstration. I had some people from the audience come down, and I did like a little Lego therapy demonstration, and Simon came down and did it. So there was Simon there calling building Legos. And he said, <laughs> you know, and he said to me afterwards, like, you know, Dan, I think this thing might work. You know, this, this seemed pretty good. This really, you know, he said, I was interacting with these people very intensely for a while. It Mm. seems like there's something to it. So he went back and peeled off one of his thousands of graduate students who turned out to be Georgina Owens, who later got married and became Gina Gomez de la Cuesta. (laughs) Right. She married a Spaniard and her her Spanish has actually gotten pretty good. (laughs) So Gina came and stayed with me in New Jersey when I was running groups there just outside of Philadelphia. And I kind of taught her the process because she decided with Simon that they would do a replication of this at Cambridge. And that was the first time that anyone had tried to do it besides me, independent of me. Like I had students of mine that were running Lego clubs, but not someone 
that would take it away. Yes. And so that was the time that I wrote the manual for Gina because she was going to train a bunch of undergraduates. And this was also the first time we had non-professional people like fantastic, not child psychologists doing it. That was at Cambridge. And Daniel, you've mentioned the manual and that was in 2014. Is that the one you're referring to? The Lego based therapy manual? Yes. And that's a really great, and you can tell us more, but that's a great starting point for a lot of professionals that want to learn more about it with the optional possibility of then implementing Lego-based therapy. I have to say that being trained as a facilitator of Lego-based therapy, personally, I found that hard to come across here in Sydney, Australia. I kind of Googled months ago, can you tell us a little bit about professionals that I know are listening and are keen? They've got the manual to start them off. Do they also need to look at that formal facilitator training? (laughs) Absolutely not. I had people that I've known for years who got started just by reading the first article I wrote in 2004. And one of the interesting things that I've said many times to people who come to my trainings is that I didn't even want to write the manual. The only reason I wrote the manual is because Simon wanted something for Gina to follow for her dissertation so they could do a replication. But Dr. G.W. Krauss, who's actually on the cover of that book, he's now in the military. He's the captain in the U.S. Army, psychologist. And he and I and Gina and Simon, we all talked about whether we were going to publish the manual because I was resistant to it. I didn't want to publish it. The main reason was because I thought people should get the idea and then just wing it, you know, just go and be creative. Just get some Lego. Like, you know, it's going to work <laughs> like, what if, as long as it's got Lego involved. Yes. Then we started hearing stories about people who had read my article and then did it really badly. We were like, oh, no. You know, now my name is associated with this thing. And people started doing trainings of their own, believe it or not. People I'd never met, never heard of, were starting Lego clubs and then training people and doing it really wrong. And then they would send me videotapes of them doing it. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. That's no, no, no. It's got it all wrong. So then we're like, oh, you should really give it a little more guidance. But even after publishing the manual, what I didn't want to happen was that people would just do it the way we had written it. We all agreed, like, what should really happen is that people should start there. And if they get new ideas, like when I first started doing Lego Club, we hadn't started doing the stop motion animation thing. Well, it turns out later, most of the kids over about 11 or 12 years old, that's all they want to do. You know, they really want to just get to the point where they can make these movies because they see them on YouTube now. Like we started making Lego movies in the late 90s, and now it's like quite a common thing. It's quite a rigor. <laughs> College students make these things in their dorm rooms, you know, just with their webcams and phones and the Legos they brought from home. You know, they make Lego, quite elaborate Lego films. But just getting people to follow the manual, I didn't think was, was what we wanted. Well, I wanted people to kind of take that as a place, a jumping off point and say, okay, well, let's get good at this and just get the idea of like, we have to do it collaboratively. We have to engage them in a creative process. They want to develop relationships with each other, meaningful social connection, not just, you know, like kids in your class kind of thing. And the other thing that we wanted to support was development of the parent relationship. Yes. So there'd be like an ongoing process where just like you see parents in the waiting room at, at anything like gymnastics or the football or martial arts and they bond and they talk about their kids and they share and they, you know, and then they have birthday parties, you know, they do things together. Our Lego club kids do that. Yep. Because they don't usually make it on the football team. They're not good rugby players. <laughs> so yes. Those kids who don't play Aussie rules <laughs> are much better at Lego club. And for the first time, those parents get to brag. Oh, see that there? That big castle over there? My son built that. 
you know, <laughs> or my son designed that. Or did you see that film? My son, that was his, he wrote that. Or that was his voice, you know, he did the part of so-and-so in that film. So they, they get to kind of get a sense of pride in their kid, but you know, the kid also sees that, right? It's a reciprocal thing. For the first time ever, they see dad's proud of me. You know, wow. You know, it wasn't like the worst kid on the football pitch. They were like, oh, look at that. My kid, you know, that look that parents give their kid when they accomplish something with their friends, especially like, wow, my kid is part of this group of kids who do these amazing things. And they can brag to the other parents about what their kid is up to instead of just apologizing all the time. So that kind of creative element, I didn't want to shut down by just telling people, okay, do it this way, because that's how we did it. At the same time, you know, I also think we made a lot of mistakes over the years. Like I thought kids would be able to eat Skittles in the room and you have no idea what a mess a kid can make with one Skittle. (laughs) (laughs) You get Skittles in Australia? We do. (laughs) Hard candies. Yeah. Well, food in the Lego room is a bad idea. (laughs) Letting your big brothers come in the room could also be a bad idea or letting your neighbor's kid come in the room could be, believe it or not, that can really backfire. You get one kid in there who's really good at Lego and suddenly everybody in the room feels inadequate and that kid is shining and obviously taking up more than their own like space, if you will, psychologically in the room because they're very good at leadership skills and it just makes everybody feel inferior Mm. and it's not their group anymore. Like, why did you bring your brother here? He's so freaking good at Lego (laughs) and he's really charming. Like, (laughs) make us all like a bunch of geeks again, you know, like. Why did you spoil Lego Club by bringing your super competent? But Lego Clubs are definitely increasing. I know here in Australia, I've seen an increase. It's been fantastic. And I'm seeing it in, in amongst councils, in libraries, as well as, you know, in a professional or a clinical setting. And it's mostly, you know, speech pathologists, occupational therapists, psychs, and some educators that are keen to take up or create Lego Clubs. So it is becoming increasingly popular. And I guess my question around the, the formal training is that, you know, colleagues were kind of saying, but you know, we need to be trained because there's that thing of we need that formal training to then be able to ethically tell parents that we've been trained in Lego therapy. Do you see what I mean? So that's where that... Well, yeah. And I have done that. I mean, I've now done workshops all over the world. I don't know how many different ones I've done, but I've seriously been all over the world doing the trainings. Not so much in the United States, by the way. (laughs) They really have a bias here against Lego Club because it's not behavioral. And I keep trying to explain to them, you know, like social functioning can't be behavioral. Like it's that simple. Like you just can't teach it as a behavior. It has to be a change in the kid and they have to be motivated to do it. Otherwise, it's just them doing what you told them to do. And other kids can tell that. Yeah. And so I think changing kids by capturing their motivation and having it part of their natural tendencies, you know, like you're shaping something that's very natural for them is a different experience. And that's very hard to do if your goal is to bring the behavior under stimulus control. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like totally uh, behavior and all this sort of, you know, and the ABA just rules the United States right now. They just took over. They don't, I mean, they say they're evidence-based. There was a word evidence-based, but evidence-based means ABA-based. They don't listen to any other evidence. They don't care what's going on in neurophysiology. They don't care what's going on in neuropsychology. They don't believe in psychodiagnostics. They don't, you know, they're just like other professionals can go jump in a lake. We're the behavior analysts and we, we're in charge of education of children with autism. And Lego just isn't ABA enough. Even though I supervise and train behavior analysts, most of them don't even realize that behavior analysis is just behavioral psychology that 
we mm. gave away to educators. Like I was around long before clinical psychologists started teaching teachers how to do behavior analysis, which was behavioral psychology. You know, even people like Brian Iwata, who's the editor, has been a long time editor of the Journal of Applied Behavioral Analysis, the clinical psychologist, B.F. Skinner was not a clinician. I mean, he studied animals, but he was still a psychologist. So they said, we're not psychologists, we're behavioral analysts. I'm like, no, psychologists invented this stuff, and then they gave it to you, and you had to call it something different, and it became applied behavioral analysis. But the basic tenet of it is it's certainly amenable to that, and there's some people who are wonderful with it, but they really have to bend and lean away from the theory, lean away from Skinnerian theory, and they get into trouble for that. Like Bob and Lynn Cagle at the University of California in Santa Barbara, who do a lot of work with peers, peer-mediated learning and social learning. Yep. And they talk about things like skills. But traditionally, and I actually have seen, I saw Ivar Lovas in the old days uh, at a conference debating with Robert Kegel about this concept of skills. He didn't believe in skills. And if you're traditional about behavior analysis, you realize that a skill is technically a psychological term and it's not an observed behavior, as I was saying earlier. And so if you use terms like skill, you're not a behavior analyst to me, which is crazy because I mean, this is the evidence of skill and the evidence of abilities versus skills versus, you know, observable performance. I get into trouble with behavior analysis all the time. Today. <laughs> it's devotion to a methodology, not to a profession. It's technically not a profession. Yes. It's a method. And that's a bit worrisome when you're really devoted to a method because that method needs to grow and change and develop. So Lego Club is really a socially based group that encourages children to change socially, not just change their behavior. Yeah. And it provides that opportunity in that space for a lot of these kids where it is, as we said earlier, it's just an intrinsic interest for them. It's highly motivating. It draws to a lot of their strengths and that gets them going and participating. And then surprisingly, even to themselves, they're learning a lot of other stuff at the same time. The problem with a lot of people is that they think it's supposed to be like a classroom. And that's one of the reasons why I've had a hard, really hard time training behavior analysts to do this is because they think they're supposed to be in control. And if you're in control of what's happening in the room, you're too much a member of the group. You're running yeah. the group. And that's not what's supposed to happen. It's their group. You're supposed to be in the background. You know, you're just supposed to be supplying the Lego. And then you kind of become, you know, I, I call it border collie. And I know that border collies are popular there. I'm a big border collie fan. But you have more sheep than we do in the United States. <laughs> right. So I think Kiwis really understand border collies well. <laughs> they have more sheep than us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Staying on the outside and having that influence, you know, is what the therapists are supposed to do in Lego Club. They just kind of border collie from the outside and get the sheep to sort so of stay in the group. But it's really the, the herd is where the things are happening and they're bonding. I call it swimming with the fish is another analogy for like what kids do when they're out on the playground. And somehow they all know what's happening. You know, it's not clear to us adults what's going on, but somehow they all know. And it's those smart little bossy girls that run the playground. You know, there's like six-year-old girls that can babysit already. Those ones run the playground. <laughs> uh, and us gormless boys are walking around looking for worms in the dirt. And oh, I'm not even going to comment there, Daniel. <laughs> kicking, we're just kicking a ball around. We don't worry about social skills. Girls are already like noticing who's got their hair done right and who's <laughs> yeah. wearing the right kind of shoes for the season. Oh, for like, some, what? for some. But I've yeah. got to say, and just in the context of Lego, yeah. I know many, many, many girls who are totally into Lego and 
just, you know, would do amazingly in this kind of, I guess, Lego context, if I can call it that. So, Oh, they do. We've had lots of girls in Lego Club and they really, they, they can really flourish, especially once it starts getting to the more creative stuff and not just set building. But yeah, just obviously a lot of girls devoted to Lego. I shouldn't say it's all a boy thing at all. Yeah. But I think the first couple of girls that we ever had in Lego Club, it raised some eyebrows and the boys were like, whoa, Dr. Nan, are you sure? Then they saw them building and they're like, yeah, okay, we get oh, it. She's eating tick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They know what they're doing. You know, they, oh. once they see the product, they're like, yeah, okay, you can build. Yeah, can that take. is fantastic. Daniel, I really, you know, obviously I'm a fan. I've seen it in action at, at our, clinic, our Sydney-based speech pathology clinic and really wanted to gather more information from you. For I know there are lots of professionals out there that are interested and want to start Lego clubs or Lego-based therapy. Knowing that your book, as if we look at it as a manual, I mean, with their clinical background knowledge, if they've got, you've talked about some of the key components. Yes, how, do you want to hold that up again? Not that they can see it, but show this me. Is the second book. How Lego-Based Therapy for Autism Works, Landing on My Planet. I love that. What year was that published? 2017. 2017. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've got the, uh, all right, so there's a few out and you've got another one coming out too, a third one, Daniel. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, the second book is actually a collection of case histories. All right, yep. And theoretical discussion combined. So there I'm explaining in more depth about this stuff we were talking about today, which is the origins of the group, but also I give examples of the kids who participated in the beginning groups and how their therapy evolved and some of the mistakes that were made along the way, that kind of thing. It's sort of the history of Lego Club with the case examples and the outcomes. And a lot of the kids that were in that book, I'm still in touch with. So now I have Lego Club kids who are who started nice. in groups with me who are in their 30s and have you know jobs and have their own kids and stuff like that. That's it's awesome. Really cool. I'm like I'm buddies with them on Facebook. And then the third book is called For Families, and it's over the years we developed a lot of strategies for the families who were participating. You know, they had their kids in Lego Club. But there was a lot more that they could be doing as well. And that included hosting Lego club groups or parties or activities at home, kind of like hosting Boy Scouts or something, you know, or Girl Scouts. And the strategies that kids could use at school to help with social competence, like I was saying earlier about like say hi to the most popular kid in the room, making friends in the community. I really encourage parents to look at their own social development. Yes. (laughs) Quite often, especially dads. I hate to say it, but... I've met so many really highly accomplished professional dads who don't even make eye contact in the waiting room with any of the other parents. So there's room for parents to look at how they can develop and expand their social competence and invite their kids to participate in that. And so there's ways, like in the book, I talk a lot about how the family becomes an engine for the child's social competence and how important that is. Excellent. Because I've seen over the years, so many kids hit this glass ceiling in their careers. and whether it's a severe limit, which could be a common outcome for a lot of kids who even have very high IQs, very competent, successful in high school, and then really fall apart in college because they don't navigate that social environment very well and wind up back at home living in mom's basement playing video games, you know, or, or they wind up, you know, successfully navigating into the adult world of vocation, get a job and then sit in a carol for the rest of their career, even though they could probably be a supervisor. Like, how do you get to the point where someone wants to give you a promotion, 
because they want to take you out and have a beer with you. And like, that has to happen. You have to kind of break through that social barrier because if people are still finding you off-putting, even though you're extremely talented, you're going to be marginalized. Yeah. And I think society suffers as much as they do by the lack of our taking advantage of that talent and creativity and innovativeness and uniqueness that this population has. We don't get to benefit from them because we don't like being around them. They're annoying. You know, like <laughs> just because <laughs> yeah. we find them like I don't find them annoying. I find them delightful. I, I like yeah, you know, I agree, I, yeah. I spent my whole life with this population. I love these kids. But some people find them annoying. And you know, they talk about the same stuff and you know, they they're picking their teeth, you know, whatever it is they're doing that is getting on people's nerves. It really does have an effect on your ability to function in the work world as well as in the social world. If you want your children to grow up, to get married, to have their own kids, they have to be able to navigate the social environment. And the launch pad for that is the family. Certainly a big boost to that is some of the strategies that have come out of Lego Club. Oh, yeah. So like I said, you know, the kids in Lego Club are now all grownups. And I'm in touch with a lot of them, the successful ones as well as the failures, really. And so a lot of these kids have made significantly huge strides in their life by turning on that switch of, you know, realizing, wow, other people are kind of fun. Other people are good to be around. I don't mind working with other people. It seems to be more fun than being by myself. Yes, yes. That sounds fantastic. So Lego-based therapy guidance for families, when is that going to be out? Probably within within the next six months. Okay. Not, not short term, but. So hopefully 2020 or going well. 2020 to 2011, yeah. I mean, 2020 to 2021, yeah. <laughs> I was taking a flashback. That sounds fantastic. And I do want to mention this other resource that you put forward to me was one by a couple of speech and language pathologists, a book, Dawn Ralph and Jackie Rochester. And they've written Building Language Using Lego Bricks, a practical guide, which sounds fantastic for other allied health professionals that want to look at that one as well. Yeah, that's two speech pathologists that took this methodology and developed it specifically for speech and communication purposes. And yeah, I think they did a great job. Brilliant, brilliant. Daniel, I'll put those books and all of that into show notes because I know that there will be a lot of people interested in following that up further. And I'm just so grateful that you're able to share your wonderful wisdom, your research, your findings, and what I think are the amazing benefits of Lego. Oh, actually, and before we finish up, I'm just curious, have you ever watched the show or do you know the show Lego Masters? <gasps> I'm not going to say anything. You just gave me a thumb down. At the mo- <laughs> it is so popular. And I only bring it up because you know why? Because it's on right now in Sydney and it's just so popular amongst kids. It's not a promo or anything like that. It's just one of those yeah. things that I've just seen a lot of kids very excited about. And I think that just speaks for something about Lego that does motivate and interest kids. And I think, you know, that is part of the success of the success you're seeing perhaps with, you know, your Lego groups and et cetera, and what that brings with it. But I was curious because it's on right now. I was like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, people have mentioned it to me and, you know, I saw it. The Lego Brickumentary was a popular film that's still like running in various streaming sources that has me in it. I think that one of the problems with the, that I have with some people who decide to get into this is a very commercial. Yeah, true. And not all that realistic. It's sort of reality TV, but it's rehearsed. And it's one of the things that I've tried to convey about Lego Club, and it's one of the things that I think sometimes doesn't always come across, is 
how real it has to be that, you know, you can't orchestrate this. And if you, like I said, if you're in charge of it, you're doing something wrong. You have to kind of let it happen. It has to be their interest and their connection, their motivation. And if it seems like you're, you know, trying to make it smoother or you're trying to help it along, you're working too hard. You know, you should let the kids do the work. And that's one of the things I, I don't like about, you know, that kind of glamorized version of this where they're competing and, you know, it's a little too rehearsed, a little too edited and orchestrated because Lego Club it's itself, <laughs> especially, you know, the stuff I wrote about in this book, it was messy. I mean, we had a lot of like, you know, fights and tears and. Oh, yeah. I don't think you can parallel the two. That's definitely not why I brought it up. You can't parallel it. I think there are two completely different purposes behind the two. Certainly from an entertainment right. point of view, that's what TV does. But Lego-based yeah. therapy is not anything like it. It's just kind of something that... It's not glamorous, but it is meaningful to the kids who that's participate. It. That's it. And mm. it's not like, you know, playing a, a game. Like what parents will tell teachers, it's not such... I mean, parents will tell their kids, it's not such a big deal. It's just a game, right? In Lego Club, oh, it's on the opposite. This is real. This is meaningful. These are your friends. This is a real situation. You, you know, they, they take it seriously. Yep. And I, I encourage them to be emotionally invested in their relationships and in their accomplishments. And like when kids graduate, we give them a diploma and it has their name and the other kids' signatures on it. And they take it home and they get it framed and they put it on the wall. They're like really proud of it, like their karate belt or whatever. You know, it's like something they, they accomplished. I want them to take this seriously because it, it does have a, a huge change, at least the potential for a huge change in their lives, not just in participating in something like therapy or, or a spelling bee or something. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fantastic. And I really, look, there's so many things that I can appreciate in all the work you've done. And as I said, it's growing in popularity and I'd love to see more professionals and parents and families just look at what is available to them in the community and to be proactive if they feel that their child or children will respond to a Lego kind of context and Lego-based therapy to just take those steps into making that happen. Yeah. And if anybody in Sydney or Adelaide or Christchurch wants me to come down and do a training, just tell them to contact me and uh, we can set it up. Fantastic. Fantastic. It really caught on in South America for some reason. I've done a lot of trainings in South America. I had the book translated into Spanish and then I typically use a Spanish translator because I don't speak Spanish. But I have done trainings, like I said, all over the place, but not yet in Australia. We'll never say never. <laughs> And a shout out to my friend, Rob Deacon, who is inside the brick. Do you know Rob? No. <laughs> He's a big, big fan and he has a lot of Lego-based activities. He doesn't do Lego therapy, but he, he actually came to visit me when I was in Canada. We talked extensively, but he also went to visit the owner of Lego in Denmark. Wow. He's a businessman and a great thinker, but a real, he's a Lego fan and he really understands the potential for this to help kids develop socially as well. Anyway, he's an Australian entrepreneur and business developer. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Daniel, for your time and for sharing all your wonderful wisdom and knowledge with us. You're welcome. Glad to do it. It's fine. 
Fascinating chat there with Dr. Daniel Lagoff. Now, he has generously offered for anyone who is listening that does have further questions to feel free to email him. We have his email in our show notes and you'll find that at chataboutchildren.com. Also within the show notes, I have listed the books that we referenced and we'll also have a link there to research articles that are also relevant to Lego-based therapy. So feel free to check out the show notes on chataboutchildren.com. Now, if you have enjoyed this episode and see benefit in sharing it with family, with friends or with colleagues, please do so. And remember to leave a rating and a review for the Chat About Children podcast. I thank you so much for your attention. I celebrate you and look forward to chatting soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich, www.chataboutchildren.com. 